John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, uh, may we live as Christ lived in spirit and truth, in submission to the Holy Spirit and in obedience to your will. Lord, may we love as Christ loved, so that in ourselves we become nothing, in order that Christ may be seen in us and show his love in our lives. To your praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Roger, for reading our text today. We're continuing our study here in John Proclaiming Jesus in the Gospel of John, and here we're looking at John chapter 13. And so today our hope is that we will see Jesus Christ, uh, see Him proclaimed through the Gospel of John, 
so that we might know Him and follow Him, believe in Him, and proclaim Him ourselves. Our desire and our hope is that as we go through this study, we might know Jesus more. I mean, here's our Savior, here's our Lord. And today, as we come to this text, we're going to see the incredible love of Jesus Christ that He has displayed. In fact, my main point this morning is this. We proclaim Jesus as the divine Lord who lovingly and sacrificially serves His people. Who lovingly and sacrificially serves His people. Now, we consider these these two aspects. The aspect of Jesus being the divine Lord and the aspect of Him serving. They don't seem to go hand in hand. Especially not in our modern way of thinking. To be the Lord means that others serve you, right? That's, that's the way we normally think about it. How many of you would love to be the Lord of your home and everyone in your home served you? Like, oh yeah! Like one honest person right here. All right, I had both hands up. <laughs> right, we want to be served. That's our desire. We, we, we often look for ways to get out of serving, right? Sometimes it's maybe the excuse of I didn't hear you. Oh, you wanted me to do something? I didn't hear you. To get out of, we, we try our best to get out of serving, not serve. We want others to serve us. But this is not what Jesus taught or exemplified. Jesus didn't teach that the Lord has come to be served. Rather, while maintaining His Lordship over all things, Jesus presented His followers with This idea of biblical servanthood exemplified in himself. If we remember what we've studied so far in John, going all the way back to John chapter 1, Jesus is the eternal God who created the world and everything in it. Here is the Lord of all creation, all things, and now he demonstrates himself to be a servant, preferring others over himself so that he, through willing sacrifice and giving of time and energy, could benefit others. The time and energy that he could have spent benefiting himself. And he gives us this example of what biblical servanthood is meant to look like, that we too are meant to prefer others over ourselves. That we too are meant to willingly sacrifice our time and energy for the benefit of others that could easily be used to benefit ourselves. This is what Jesus lives out. He lives out this servanthood towards God the Father, towards His fellow humanity. Today we want to see three aspects of this servanthood. And we'll see here in it more about our amazing Jesus and about how we should follow Him this morning. Let's dig into our text here. And first, first point is this, the motivation of the servanthood of Jesus. The motivation of the servanthood of Jesus. Here in chapter 13, we make this transition out of, uh, out of chapters 11 and 12, which were this transitional part of the book. Some people have broken it down to be uh, a book of signs, chapters 1 through 10, and a book of Christ's passion. Uh, the rest of uh, following chapter 12, verse thir- chapters 13, all the way to the end. The, and, and this is really just the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. This is the last week of His life here. It's recorded in these last chapters in John. And as we come to this transition, we read about the very motivation of Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 13. Really, it's, a, it's an introduction to uh, not just chapter 13, but to the rest of the rest of John. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, we've looked at that before. He's talked about the hour. This is the hour of His death. The hour of His glorification that would occur on the cross. He is moving towards the cross. He knows that it has come. In fact, we saw it last week in chapter 12. What signaled the fact that the Son of Man knew that the hour had come was that the Greeks had come and pursuing Him. And now the nations were coming to find Jesus. And Jesus says, my time is now. The hour has come. 
And what was this hour going to do? It says here to depart out of this world to the Father. And then we have these wonderful phrases. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here we see the motivation of why Jesus would lower himself to serve. First of all, we see it in this first read, having loved his own. Love for his own has motivated Jesus thus far. Having loved. This past tense, this is everything that, that Jesus has done, has been done for this reason. He was motivated by this. I mean, we, we do read in chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that He gave His Son. But why does God love the world so much? What's the purpose ultimately is to draw men and women out of the world to His Son. And in, in, in this passage, He does not talk about loving the world, but now He t- talks about loving His own. There was a love for his own, these, these ones that have been drawn out from the world, that are distinct from God's love for the world. There's this specific or definite love that has motivated Jesus and will continue to motivate him. There's this love that he has for his people that has brought Jesus to this point in his life and in his ministry. This verse should cause us to view the object of love then as not as the lost world now, but as His own. He's drawing in this tight focus on those with whom He's going to demonstrate this specific, this definite love to. He's drawn out people who will eventually, as we see in Acts, constitute the church. His people. But not only has He loved them, those of His own who were in the world, again, distinct from it, drawn out from it, they live in it, but they are His own that live within it. But not only has He loved them, but He loved them, it says, to the end. Love for His own continues to motivate Jesus. It has brought Him this far, and it will actually continue to motivate Him until the end. Now, there's at least two different understandings of the end there. Um, we could understand it to mean the end of his life with highlighting the crucifixion. I think that is an acceptable uh, understanding of this text. His hour had come and he's going to love them all the way to the end. Or we could understand it to be he loves them to the end indefinitely, utterly. Fully. He loves them so completely. Either way, you would want to understand it ultimately points us to the way in which Jesus loves us. He loves us with everything. He loves us completely. He loves His people fully. It is what motivates Him to go to the cross. These phrases imply an important truth which will be highlighted by the second point, the rest of this section here in our text, and even be more fully demonstrated as we come to the crucifixion. And the truth is this, that love serves. Love serves. We understand this when John writes later in his in his smaller letter, First John chapter 4, he says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's Romans 5.8 that says, But God showed His love for us in that while we were all sinners, Christ died for us. The motivation of the servanthood of Jesus Christ is love, and love serves. As Nate Palmer wrote, genuine love and genuine service are not independent from one another. They cannot be separated. 
Someone who truly loves will therefore truly serve the one they love. This is a truth, and Jesus is a demonstration of this truth to us. What if all we had were the declarations that God loved us, but God never did anything? God never served us. God never sent his son. According to to John's understanding, we wouldn't really know what love is then. Because love is actually shown for us. Love is actually demonstrated for us in what Jesus actually does. It's how we understand it. It's how we know it. And therefore, as both Matthew and Matthew chapter 20 and Mark and Mark chapter 10 tell us, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why? Because he was motivated by love. Love. And love serves. Without this motivation, why would Jesus come? Why would Jesus do what he did? We don't don't see what is going on in the mind of God beyond the fact that he has desired to give the glory to his name by demonstrating a love beyond our comprehension that causes him to serve his people in a way that we don't deserve. Jesus came motivated by love to serve And our second point is the demonstration of the servanthood of Jesus. Here we see this love in action. It goes on to say here, verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God... Why does he throw this in there? Don't forget who Jesus is. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows he's Lord over all things. He's the divine Lord who is able to do whatever he wants to do, who has been sent by God himself, who's actually going back up to God. In fact, the New Testament describes Jesus in the divineness of who he is, I saying, who can ascend to God except the one who descended from God? No one can. You know, the Tower of Babel, what are they trying to do? Build a tower up to God. They can't do it. We can't build our way up to God. Jesus here, therefore, is proclaiming himself as divine Lord, and yet what do we read the divine Lord does? He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here we see Jesus taking up the task of foot washing. Now, foot washing was not a glorious task. It was not the task that you would expect the sovereign Lord, the divine Lord to do, let alone just the leader of the group, the master, the teacher, this is not something you would expect him to do. Rather, it was the job for the lowliest of servants. As you walk through uh, the roads uh, in Jerusalem, you would collect all manner of stuff on your feet. Um, Not only, you know, was it be mud and dirt, um, but there would also be uh, feces and things like that as well that would have been there, thrown out from houses that did not have you know, the plumbing that we have today. I mean, this was an absolutely disgusting job. Horrendous job. And so culturally, it was unthinkable that Jesus would do something like this. In fact, in most of the Jewish writings, There was only rare occasions that this would occur. And the reason they wrote was that it was a mark of great, genuine love for someone. Instead, most of the time, it did not happen. In fact, some Jews 
wrote that it was too low for even Jewish slaves to do, and therefore you needed non-Jewish slaves to wash the feet of the Jews. And that's how low it was. One uh, Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Ishmael, came home one day from teaching in the synagogue, and his mother wanted to wash his feet. And he said, no, no way you're going to do that. That is too low for you. You cannot do it. So she actually took him to rabbinical court in order to get the right to wash his feet because she declared that it was, she was seeking to honor him. But that's, that's culturally how they thought about it. It was just disgusting to them and detestable to them, and they didn't want anyone to do that for them other than those who were the lowest of the low. And yet, what we read here is Jesus knowing that the Father had given him all things, takes off his outer garment and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Amazing. Unfortunately, it's difficult for us, not being of this culture, to really understand how amazing it is. I have an illustration. It's not even close to what it's like. But how many of you have chores? Yeah, chores? Yeah, I have chores. <laughs> Joe has chores. Yeah, we all have chores, right? So imagine, though, uh, maybe your chore is unloading the dishwasher. Anybody do that? Oh, yeah. yeah look at all those hands. <laughs> Mowing the lawn. Oh, yeah, some of you do that. Now imagine that the President of the United States showed up at your house tomorrow to do your chores. You would, you would like that, right? <laughs> Does that sound incredible, though? You, I mean, how often do you think that happens? Not, not at all, right? No, that doesn't happen. No, in the history of presidents, it's probably not happening. I mean, maybe he, he mowed his own lawn. Or unloaded his own dishwasher. But not going to just random people's houses and doing their chores for them. You'd be shocked. You'd be utterly amazed. It's just not done, though. I mean, this, to some degree, is how the disciples are feeling as Jesus picks up that basin and begins to wash their feet. They are utterly shocked. This is just not done. It just doesn't happen. And here Jesus is doing this very thing in foot washing jesus culturally takes the role of the lowest servant nevertheless this is merely a cultural illustration of how jesus is willing to serve his people because what we know from the rest of John is that there is an even lower point that he is going to go to. The lowest point of his service is death on a cross. As Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who, thought he was in, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He served humanity that he created. He humbled himself in this foot washing. But then it goes on, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I like what Thomas Watson writes in his book, A Body of Divinity, he says, in his, Jesus's humiliation, he descended so low that it, it was not fit to go lower. He goes on to say, I, I don't want to end it right there, but, and in his exaltation, he ascends so high that it is not possible to go higher. And that's where Paul goes in Philippians 2. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on the cross, therefore God exalted him and gave him a name that is above all names. Before he is exalted, Jesus lowers himself. He lowers himself as a servant to serve his people. Now, Jesus has three applications that he presents here 
in regards to this foot washing lesson that he wants to teach his disciples and therefore us. That his demonstration has purpose. It's ultimately going to point to the greatest of demonstrations of the servant of his servanthood to his people by, by dying on the cross for them. And each of these three applications needs not be confused with one another. They're important in and of themselves. They're related, but they're not the same thing. And so it's important for us to see them. And so the first application that he gives here is in verses 6 through 11. And here, Jesus uses foot washing as a demonstration of the servanthood of his, of his own death. It's a symbol of Christ's atoning, cleansing death. In fact, verse 7 gives us that kind of highlight that Jesus is doing more than just foot washing. What does he say here? When he comes to Simon Peter in verse 6, Peter asks him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Which Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Now, Peter understood what foot washing was. Peter understood the actions that Jesus is doing. He understands that Jesus has just lowered himself to wash his feet. But he does not understand the significance behind what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is seeking to communicate through the act of foot washing. In fact, we go on to read, Peter just completely misunderstands what Jesus is intending to do. And therefore said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answers him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Here Jesus points to the cleansing that only he can give. It's not a cleansing that comes from the act of foot washing. Ultimately, it's a cleansing that only comes through the atonement through the death of Jesus Christ, where He substitutes Himself on the cross as the punishment for our sins. And our sins and its punishment are placed upon Him. And He bears it. He atones for it. And therefore washes us clean. The foot washing doesn't give this atonement, but it points to this atonement. Jesus is saying, my servanthood here is just a representation of what my servanthood is going to be hanging on a cross. And you must embrace, you must embrace my service to you. For unless you are cleansed by my service on the cross, you have no part with me. Only Jesus can clean. In fact, we see him reiterate this fact in, chapter, in verse 10. Jesus says, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. The benefit of his cross work will be absolute and assured. When Jesus cleanses, he cleanses completely. That's what he's saying. You, you are completely clean. Absolutely. Assuredly. And this is the eternal redemptive plan of God that will happen. So Jesus can speak of it in absolute terms. Even before he's gone to the cross, he affirms that his disciples have been cleansed by him. Because all He is going to the cross. He knows it. It is not unknown to Him. In His omniscience, He knows where He's going. He knows what He's going to do. And He can speak of it in absolute terms. You are completely clean. If you are in Christ Jesus. Without the atonement of Jesus, you cannot be clean. Even if Jesus performed the ritual of foot washing on you, which interestingly enough, he performs on a man named Judas, who's called Iscariot. And thus, even Jesus says here, and you are clean, verse 10, but not 
every one of you. Because foot washing was just an example. It was just a demonstration. It was just a a tool to help them understand what Jesus was going to do on the cross. So you could have your feet washed by Jesus and yet not be cleansed by Jesus because ultimately cleansing comes through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Yet here I think we should run back to verse 1 and ask ourselves, how deep is the love of Jesus when He washes the feet of the man He knew would betray Him? Here's the perfect picture of how Jesus Jesus will go to the cross and die for all mankind while atoning for His own. While cleansing His own. Oh, there is love to be seen in the death of Jesus Christ for every person on this planet. But for His own, for His people, Jesus not only goes to demonst- as a demonstration of love to the cross, Jesus actually atones for our sin. The sin of His people is actually wiped clean. Second application comes here in verse 9 and 10 as Jesus is responding to Peter. As Peter says, Lord, never wash my feet. Jesus says, if, you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash me all. <laughs> I mean, he's like, no, you're not going to do it. All right, do it all. All right, so he's excited. He is exuberant. But just this exuberance of Peter gives Jesus an opportunity to declare another application. And we see that in the beginning of verse 10. The one who has bathed does not need to wash. He has been atoned. He's cleaned. Then he says, except for his feet. The fundamental cleansing of Jesus is a once for all act. It's never to be repeated. The writer of Hebrews describes this to us. That he is the sacrifice, the lamb slain once for all. Never to be repeated. And therefore, in the life of His people, sin has been cast off the throne of the Christian's life. Jesus has cast sin off that throne. And that old sinful nature has been been dethroned. No longer rules over us. Paul writes this in Romans uh, chapter 6 and chapter 8 about how we sin does no longer have dominion over us. Sin has been cast off the throne. And yet, what do we also read? The presence of sin has not been utterly removed. Cast off the throne. Not utterly removed. And so here Jesus affirms a different application. Namely, that His own are not sinless while still living in the world. Because of this reality, Christians will experience subsequent daily cleansing as they sin and confess their sins. Or as Matthew Henry calls it, the daily care of those who through grace are in a justified state to cleanse themselves from the guilt they contract daily by the renewed exercise of repentance with a believing application for the virtues of Christ's blood. What are they saying? Based upon the atoning cleansing of Jesus Christ. Maybe we could describe it so, so that we differentiate a bit as the eternal, the eternal cleansing that Jesus gives and therefore providing with us an eternal fellowship with God. Therefore, when we say we have a right standing before God right now, we are justified before Him. That means that on the cross, Jesus paid for all our sins so that... None of them can be held against us by God. We have an eternal cleansing and therefore an eternal fellowship with God based upon that atoning sacrifice. Yet, related to this but different from it is our daily cleansing, our daily fellowship with God. It's only made possible by our eternal fellowship, our eternal cleansing. No one has a daily, trying to have a daily fellowship with God without having been eternally cleansed. I mean, that's what a lot of works-based religions want to try to do. 
You have no eternal cleansing, no absolute cleansing, no ultimate cleansing, nothing, no work of Jesus Christ that makes you right with God. And therefore, you have to work daily to try to be good enough. And that's not the gospel. That's not what we believe. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Rather, what is he saying? Based upon us having an eternal fellowship, an eternal cleansing, based upon Jesus Christ having cast sin off the throne of our hearts, how are we meant to live? We are meant to live daily clean. Sin is here with us, and so we fight against it. We don't live under the reign of sin anymore. We fight against sin. We seek to live God-honoring, glorifying lives, holy lives, godly lives, acceptable to God. And when we don't, what do we do? Do we need to be resaved? No. So Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't need, you don't need to be resaved. You just need to clean off that, that sin from your feet. There's a daily daily cleansing that needs to occur a daily confession and turning from our sins that we commit as christians so what john is intending for us to understand in first john 1 9 for if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness or chapter 2 if we sin we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the world. Here is the one who we have based upon his propitiating work, which is linked to the atonement. Based upon the work he has already done for us in atoning for us and paying for all our sins. When we sin today, we can go to him in confession and find Forgiveness guaranteed. Because the fundamental cleansing, the eternal cleansing, that I stand right before God right now, justified cleansing, has already occurred through the work of Jesus Christ. If you have been cleansed by Jesus, you have a part with Him. And you no longer have to be re-cleansed and re-cleansed and re-cleansed. Although daily, you might need to clean your feet. Right? We're sinners. Sinners saved by grace. So it's what Paul says, Ephesians 4, put off your old self. It's already been conquered by Jesus. You don't have to listen to it any longer. Put it off. And rather put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Maybe you can think of it in a sports analogy. You know, you play for a really bad team. <laughs> All right, used to be able to say it was the Cubs, but they won stuff, so, you know, can't say that anymore. It's good, right? All right. You play for a really bad team and a really bad coach, and it's just awful. You're going nowhere. I mean, losing team. All right? Maybe you, you're like, you have to just, you're always having to clean up after the whole team, and you're always having to try to figure out what's going on, and, and and that just that's a horrible team. But you've been saved from that team. All of a sudden you get a call from the scout. I got a new team for you. This is a winning team. They've got the superstar on there that does basically everything. <laughs> All right? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. You get on the team and you're treated like royalty. And you're like, yeah, he does do everything. He cleans up all my messes too. <laughs> and, and we win. I mean, that's what has happened to us in this, this cleansing, atoning work of Jesus Christ. We've been transferred to the winning team, glorious, the, the children of royalty now, children of God himself. But here's how Christians sometimes live. We're like, oh, yeah, I got this great team, but I heard my coach from my old team call. Maybe I better go over there real quick. And play, play a game for them. Play on their team. Maybe do some things for them. That's sin. Sin constantly calls us back. But you know what? We don't play for that team anymore. He's not our coach. We don't have to listen to them. We don't have to listen to sin. We can fight against sin. We can say no to sin. We don't have to live under sin any longer. And that's what Jesus is seeking to communicate here. 
You are now mine. Nothing can take you from me. Yet you still sin in this world. And when you do, clean your feet. Confess. And when you do, because of the eternal cleansing work of Jesus, the atoning work of Jesus, we can confidently know that our God will forgive us of all our sins. There's a third application. Verses 12 through 20. This is the application I feel like we probably would automatically run to and miss the first two, but the first two are so significant. Um, to helping us then see the, the, the third application here is a lesson on Christian servanthood. Both the act of Jesus washing his feet and ultimately the act that it points to of him dying on the cross is to have significance as examples to us as Christians. Human pr- pride refuses to take the lower role. But humble servanthood is the example that Jesus sets for us. He sets it throughout his entire life, and he sets it in his death. And now Jesus reminds them, notice the transition. And when he had washed their feet and and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, here is the, the one in whom the Father has put all things, stooping down, humbling himself to wash his feet, But now what do we read? He gets back up. He puts on his outer garment. He takes his place and begins to teach them as the Lord and Savior who he is. In fact, he reminds them of this. Do you you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example so that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sends him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do do them. Here Jesus reminds them of who he truly is. He is, as they proclaim, the teacher and the Lord. And, and, and in that, I don't, I don't think we just need to understand the most uh, minute understanding of those words, that he's just a rabbinical teacher and he happens to be their master. But I think in them we can see some weight. He's the revealer of who God is as the teacher. He is the Lord. Lord, used in the Septuagint, often is describing of God himself. He is the Lord. And they have proclaimed this. They have confessed this, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. His disciples have professed this. Now Jesus is reminding them, if that's who I really am, and I do this, and I serve in this way, how then should you live? You know, the significance of his Truly, truly statements, as we've seen throughout John. And here's another one in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And which begs the question in my mind, or causes me to ask this question. If a servant isn't greater than his master, and my master serves and I don't, am I his servant? servant isn't greater than his master. How can I claim that Jesus is my master if I somehow, through my pride, think I'm greater than him? You know, we can know a lot of things about Jesus. We know a lot of things about God. We can sing a lot of things about Jesus. We can proclaim him as our Lord. But here, the rubber meets the road. You truly call me master? Then you know you're not greater than me. Therefore, you should serve in the ways I have served. You should humble yourselves the way I have humbled myself. I mean, this is just, 
hitting at the pride in my own heart. I'm so content to say glorious things about Jesus and live for myself. Jesus' call here to those who he has truly cleansed is that we would put down our pride, that we would fight against the pride that lives within us because our sinful nature still exists here. We would fight against that pride and we would say, you're the master and you've shown us how to serve, therefore I will serve. Following Jesus means humbly serving Jesus by humbly serving others. Jesus affirms this. Jesus knows that this is the call that God the Father has given to him, that he would be sent not to be served but to serve. And then in turn, he says, so I send you. You are my people. Therefore, as I send you, you also don't go to be served. You go to serve. That's what he calls us to do. That's in that we see our third application. We're meant to learn from this foot washing that it declares that there is no task commissioned by God that is too menial or too low for His people to do. Nothing is beneath God's servant if God commands it. We must serve. Point number three, the selfishness of the servanthood of Jesus the selflessness of the servanthood of Jesus so we come to this last section verses uh, 21 through uh, verse 30 we'll start with verse 31 next Sunday but verse 21 through 30 we see here that Jesus begins to respond to the betrayal by Judas in fact it actually starts back in verse 19. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Verse 19, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Here, Jesus, on the brink of being betrayed by one of his closest associates, friends, we might say, on the brink of being arrested by Jewish leaders, the rank of being beaten, bloody, crown of thorns placed upon his head, being ridiculed and mocked, being whipped, being taken to a cross, being nailed to a tree, hanging there, desperate for breath and air as his body is stretched upon that wood. He takes time to prepare his followers for all of it it's amazing this statement that jesus makes in verse 19 i am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place you may believe that i am he again he wants his disciples to know him to know who he is the i am he is that i am of god the name of god preparing his disciples for this this is the demonstration of the selflessness of the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, don't forget, he's 100% God, yes, but he's also 100% man. He knows, he knows what's coming up, and he knows the, the, the pain, the agony, the heartbreak that it's going to take. In fact, we saw, uh, we saw that heartbreak as he cries out previously, my soul is troubled. Chapter 12, verse 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So, Father, glorify my name. It's like the, the Gethsemane prayer. Let me just pass. Not your will, but not my will, but yours be done. And so, here, with all the weight of what's coming, Jesus takes time to prepare his disciples. But not only that, Jesus begins to expose his betrayer. 
which really does leave him with a choice. Here, Judas has the opportunity to remain silent and continue with his plot or to come clean and turn away from his plot. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Probably because the disciples weren't quite getting what Jesus was saying. Maybe somebody outside of this inner circle. Maybe there's somebody on the fringe that's going to betray Jesus. But what Jesus is actually saying is one of you twelve will betray me. It gives Judas the opportunity and yet what do we find? Judas remains silent. Disciples looked at one another. They, they wondered who it could be. Peter, who is laying, it seems, across from Jesus, looks over to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we believe is the author John, and says, ask him, ask him the question, who it is. And John leans over and asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So that when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. What's it? The line that's going on here is so interesting. It's not in our culture. Again, we don't celebrate the Passover meal. We don't. Here, Jesus has this choice morsel that he would hand out to someone. It was, it was considered an honor, an act of love. This would indicate that Judas probably was sitting near to Jesus as well. Maybe even in the seat of honor at his left hand. We're not completely sure. But here Jesus demonstrates a final gesture of his love towards Judas. And yet this gesture does not break Judas. Rather, he is hardened in his resolve to betray Jesus. So hardened here that we're told what we had indicated in verse 2. We're told here now at this point. Satan enters Judas. And Jesus says to him then, what you are going to do, do quickly. In Judas, we see how someone could be exposed to the gospel of Jesus, his teaching, his signs, and even the very loving acts of Jesus in the foot washing and in the passing of this morsel and yet still voluntarily choose to betray Him, to turn away from Him, to choose sin over Him. Unless we misunderstand the text, the text tells us why. In verse 10 and 11, you are clean. How does that cleansing come? It comes only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But not every one of you. For He knew who was to betray Him, and that is why He said, not all of you are clean. What this text tells us and the illustration of Judas tells us is that without the atonement of Jesus Christ to cleanse us, to give us new life, one will inevitably choose sin. Mankind left to his own choice will by his own voluntary self-determined, not coerced, will by necessity choose sin. What's different from the tw- between Judas and the other 11? What's different? What's different goes back to our first point. Jesus loved his own. To our second point. He atoned for his own gave his life for them. As Augustine wrote, to will is of nature, but to will aright is of grace. And it is grace that Jesus gives through his atoning death to us. So some application here. First of all, know this. Jesus loves everyone deeply. And yet loves his people deeper still. 
Jesus, who is God, served each of his people by humbly coming to earth and atoning for their sins. To be one of his people means that we have been cleansed of all our sins and there is no eternal punishment awaiting us. And so the question is, are you one of his people? I mean, that would be something I would want to know. God's people turn from their sin and trust Jesus alone to save them from their sins. He is the only one who can. Only grace can save us. So how can we walk? Well, to those of you today who are here who are not one of Jesus' people or not one of his followers, believe in Jesus today. Turn to him today. To the Christian, let me give you three reminders. Remember that your eternal cleansing comes from Jesus. This morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's table here in just a minute. And as we do, we are meant to remember Jesus, his sacrifice and his death. Remember, your eternal cleansing comes only from Jesus. Only Jesus can make you right with God. Only he can. And so we should rejoice in it. We should celebrate what Jesus has done. We should be thankful for what he has done. We should trust in it. We don't come to communion in the Lord's table trusting in somehow these elements to save us because they can't. We don't trust in our own goodness because our own goodness can't save us. It is only Jesus Christ. He has given his life to eternally cleanse us. But also, Christian, remember that your eternal cleansing has enabled you to live a daily life of cleansing. We're meant to fight sin. We're meant to resist temptation. We're meant to confess when we do sin. We're meant to pursue holiness. We're meant to look Christ-like. When we come to this table, we are affirming our allegiance and commitment to Jesus Christ. And so we don't come harboring sin. We don't come with unrepentant sin. Not that... Not that repenting of sin saves us. No, Jesus saves us. But if we're going to be committed to Him, we need to be committed to lives that seek to put to death the sin that exists in us. That's what Christ came to do. He came to put to death the sin that is in us. Therefore, in Christ, I have died. So when we're partaking of the table, we're saying, in Him, I have died. And I live now through Him. He has our allegiance. We are committed to Him. And then remember, your Savior served, so you should serve too. Serve one another command in this text is specific to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Although uh, throughout the, the, the New Testament, the Christians are called to serve others as well. Particularly, Jesus is looking at the 11 there and saying, as I have served you, now you serve one another. Serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I would encourage you to serve generally, first of all. Be involved in some aspect of the service of your church on Sunday. But then your service doesn't have to be limited to Sunday. Maybe there's other ways throughout the week that you could show care to your brothers and sisters in Christ or to your church through yard care, through maintenance, through creating handouts for church, through setting up things, for, through going over to one of your brothers and sisters' house and praying with them and talking with them, reading the Bible with them. There's all numbers of ways in which we can serve both on Sunday and on other days of the week. Some things you know, that you serve in church towards your brothers and sisters require membership. So if you're not a member here, I would encourage you to become a member so you might serve. Attend meetings, participate, but then serve specifically. Even in a church our size, we will not know everyone well enough to serve everyone specifically. So the question would be to each of us would be, who do you know well enough to serve specifically? Do you know someone here well enough to serve them specifically? 
You know some of their needs and you know some of their struggles. Maybe you share some of your temptations to sin with one another and you encourage one another to fight against that sin. You know them well enough to speak into their lives, to serve them. It's one thing to say that we love one another. It's another thing to mean it. And we mean it by serving one another. Just as Jesus loved us and so served us, we ought to love one another and therefore serve one another. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the example of Jesus Christ. How good it is to know the love that He has for His people. How good it is to know the care that He demonstrates to His people. Especially we that claim to be His people. We, we have experienced His love. We know what He has done for us. In turn, I pray this morning as we partake in communion that You would remind us of all that we owe to Jesus. Remind us of, of all that He has done for us and that our hearts would, would respond with thankfulness for all that He has accomplished through His work on the cross, through His servanthood to us, through humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that we might live, we might have life, we might know life in its fullness. Lord, may we rejoice in his goodness to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.